This is the Commercial Property Investing Explained series, a free 10-part course brought to you by Steve Polisi. Find out how commercial property really works and start investing like the pros. Your education starts now. Welcome to the Commercial Property Investing Explained series with Steve Polisi. I'm your host, Andrew Bean, and I'm here with author of Commercial Property Investing Explained Simply and founder of Buyers Agency, Polisi Property. How you doing, mate? I'm not too bad, Andrew. Good to talk to you again. It is. It's always good to talk to you, mate. So today we are really diving deep into probably one of the parts of commercial property that is most different to residential as in there's a lot more involved and that is the due diligence so this actual podcast is going to be part one of the due diligence episode seven and we're going to be talking about initial dd or what dd is the area and the location and also location analysis so i believe you also have a free due diligence checklist for download on your website for the listeners yeah, that's right, Andrew. Like it's a really extensive list. There's over like 200 points on it and you don't have to address all of them on it. But as this is the most important part of the process, I'd recommend kind of ticking off as many of those as you can. Yeah, the DD checklist for commercial is very, very long. I actually put together a DD list for self-storage and it was double the commercial self-storage checklist. So it was a really big document. Yeah, that's just because you have the standard due diligence checklist, plus you can have all the specialized yeah. ones you need for storage. And, and you'll need that for different types of commercial assets as well, whether you're buying like a retail or industrial, they're all going to have their nuances you need to check. Yeah, 100%. So firstly, mate, can you just explain to the listeners the importance of due diligence? Okay, so due diligence, as we mentioned, is the most important step of the process. And throughout this episode, we'll be calling it DD a lot of the time, which is just due diligence. It's actually a lot of work, so way more work than kind of residential, but it's what you're going to use to determine if it's a quality asset or not. So the whole purpose of due diligence is to discover like current or potential problems with a property, understand if it has any upside, and then verify any of the information that you obtained originally. So this will help you negotiate the kind of correct price for the property, as well as checking that it's a quality asset. So it is much more detailed than residential. And with residential, if you buy a mediocre asset, long-term, you'll be okay. Like as long as it's in a good area with kind of vacancies, fairly tight and not in a flood zone or something like that, long-term, you can weather quite like a lot of storms. But with commercial, because there are a lot more moving parts, if you get it wrong and you have a property that's vacant for a long amount of time, you can burn yourself financially. So, so this work is critical for your financial future. And there's just so many moving parts. Like you're going to have location analysis, the lease review, tenants business and competition analysis you're going to need to interview a tenant as well which you don't do on residential the standard building pest inspections formal valuations which are different as we mentioned on a previous episode to residential you got to do vacancy and occupancy studies you need to speak with town planners speak with property managers the list just keeps going on so undertaking thorough due diligence can reduce the stress of having the purchase and then it will give you confidence as well ensure your negotiation skills are first class yeah, I think that uh, DD checklist is very important because you, if you're coming from a residential background of investing, you just don't know what you don't know in commercial. So having that document there just to check off the things that you actually do need to have that are requirement to um, make yourself mitigate some risk there, I think that's really important. It is so much work. Like it is not just an hour on kind of realestate.com having a bit of a browse. Like due diligence, it can take anywhere from a day to two, three weeks. Like one of the projects you've been working on, Andrew, has been months. So yeah. just really appreciate that you have to do the work on this. But if you are time poor or you're uncomfortable doing it, just utilize the services of a, like a credible buyer's agent. Like just get someone to do it for you. Yeah. And I think probably a good thing to talk about here, Steve, just quickly is the period of due diligence that you might request in your contract. So typically, you know, we might be working on like a 30 to 21 or 14 or even sometimes a seven day due diligence, right, Steve? Like what do you usually like to use for your period of due diligence? Obviously, as long as possible when you're trying to negotiate terms of a contract. However, in a hot market, which we're currently in, that is getting harder and harder to have a long run. So back in the day where you could negotiate a 30 day due diligence clause, that's kind of gone. One of the little tips and tricks I use is I use a shorter due diligence period when I'm negotiating 
just to make my offer different to the other kind of buyers because if they're all doing 21 and 28 day due diligence clause and I put in a 14, I can try to get that work done. And if I don't get it done, I can ask for a little extension, which most of the time is accepted. But then you'll also typically have a finance clause on top of that as well. So that's another way you can get out of the contract if need be. And a good tip as well, guys, is to actually put in the actual 14 or or 21 or whatever number it is, but then write the word business days. So you're not just working off normal calendar days, you're working off actual business days. So it gives you way more time than than just a normal day. Yeah. And when if you are going to crash a contract, say you do find something, a lot of people think they're going to crash in the cooling off period. Don't do that. You'll lose money. Crash due to the due diligence clause. That's the whole reason why you have it in there. Yeah, that's right. It's just that basically due diligence really is saying we understand and believe everything you're saying to us and we're just reserving the right to check it. And if it's not up to standard or you find something new, then that's when you need to go back. And due diligence is always a great time to basically renegotiate the price. If you find something that's untoward that you just, you know, it's going to cost $20,000 for a new air conditioner, for instance, you need to be able to say, well, can I get a credit back at the end of the contract or when the contract is settling for that expense? So you really are just kind of protecting yourself because once you go unconditional or once the contract is settled, you're done. Like you own that property. That's your problem that you bought. So yeah, spot on, Andrew. And like you said, you, you most of the time you actually get like I crush quite a lot of contracts and go under contract again with a new price, for instance, just because we find the outgoings are different or something like that. But we'll, we'll talk about that in this episode of all the types of things you needed to look out for. I hope you're enjoying the show. We'll be right back after this short break. Learning about how commercial property really works has never been easier with so many great resources around like this podcast and Steve's book. And he's giving it away for free if you use discount code podcast on his website. So go to www.policyproperty.com Use discount code PODCAST to get the book free. All you have to pay for is shipping. What a great deal. All right, mate. Well, let's move into it. So can you explain what your initial DD looks like and the things that you might cover off here? So normally when you're looking at properties, the sales agent's going to give you an information memorandum or IM. All that information needs to be checked because like a lot of people will take that as gospel, but most of the time, the agent is rushing this through as many jobs as he can. So the information hasn't been cross-checked. So firstly, is just kind of cross-check that information. In the end, though, your analysis, it needs to be better than the formal valuation that we got, where we spoke about on a previous episode, where they'll go through everything. They'll cross-check every outgoing, comparable sale, comparable rental, who the tenant is, what's going on in the area. So yours needs to be better than their report, which is about a 20-page report. So just putting that in perspective, most of my reports are 50 to 100 pages long for due diligence. So there's quite a lot there, but you can't do all that upfront because then that's the whole purpose of the due diligence clause. So you have to do some form of initial due diligence just so you can make a shortlist, for instance. So just making a shortlist can take some time. You'll see in my, my due diligence checklist, like there's 50 documents typically you're going to see throughout the process. But at the start, you just want to kind of look at the high level things. Don't get analysis paralysis by getting overwhelmed. Just check the main things. Like, firstly, obviously, going to be the price. So, look at the price and make sure is this a fair cap rate compared to other kind of properties in the area? And this is difficult sometimes as well because it depends what you're buying. Because different tenants, different size properties, different mezzanine to floor size areas, and things like that, different fit out costs, they're all going to command a different price that you need to pay. So, you need to kind of weigh that up. It's not the same as kind of buying a three bedroom house and you compare 23 bedroom houses. So, firstly, is just check the price. One point to note is like, no property is perfect, Andrew. Run as many numbers as you can, and you are going to find some discrepancies. And the fundamentals, whether you're buying a $300,000 warehouse or a $30 million commercial property, are exactly the same. And one of the examples I use is like, I get so many clients that walk away over a deal over like 0.1% net yield. And then they spend another like three to six months searching for a property. That 0.1%, if it's a quality asset, is going to make itself up over cash flow anyway over a couple of months. So when, when you are doing the due diligence, look at the quality of the asset as opposed to just trying to pick up a bargain like everyone else is. And long term, you'll end up with a much better quality asset. All right. So now, now to answer your question, the first step in initial due diligence is to get the critical information you, that you need to decide whether to shortlist the property and investigate further. If the preliminary checks are positive, you can then progress to more detailed due diligence. 
And this is before you've made an offer though. So this is before you've even remotely looked at making an offer. So Steve, you mentioned you've had a few clients uh, crash a deal over 0.1% of a yield. Is that like one point under like 6% or something and they didn't want to go yeah. forward because of that point? They've set their benchmark at 6% or 7% and they won't budge off that. And the market's been like even two, three years ago, like we were talking 7%. That same property is now five, five and a half. So any of those people that didn't end up buying, they've just missed out on so much of capital growth. But even just the cash flow will make that up. And this is the hard thing with due diligence is because everyone gets caught up on so many things. Like no property is perfect. Like everything you look at, you're going to find some issues. Some of them, the, the seller's not going to accept. You're going to try to go for a price reduction. They're going to say no. But for me, whenever I'm analyzing a property, I look at it as like a 10-year mindset. I say, will this property be more in demand than it is now? And if the answer is yes, you're generally onto a winner. And then that way you can progress through the due diligence knowing that you've got a good quality long-term asset. Totally agree, mate. So what are some good questions you could ask the agent when you're doing your initial DD? All right. So here are some typical questions I'll ask the agent. You need to be mindful though. Don't ask all these questions at once. Like during your first conversation with the agent, you don't want to disgruntle them or then put you in the kind of too hard work basket. So at the start, just keep it fairly high level, especially in a hot market like we're in now. They're going to want to sell to someone who can get on with the deal. So you just want to make sure that you're getting the high level information. But Here's a list of the typical questions I'll ask the agent. So first one is, how long has the property been on the market? How many offers have you had already? Why is the owner selling? Is the owner interested in a short or long settlement? Will you be listing similar properties soon? Could you please provide some comparable sales? Are the tenants paying fair market rent? And can you provide examples? How long has the tenant been at the premises? Is the tenant up to date with the rent and the outgoings? Has the owner ever needed to give rent abatements or discounts such as like COVID or fit out costs and things like that? Another one is if it's got less than two years left on the lease, will the tenant consider exercising their option or signing a fresh new lease? In this part of it, you could actually offer an incentive just to get them to do that early because getting a fresh five-year lease could be quite attractive for the banks. Do they have a depreciation schedule? What's the land tax value on the property? Who manages the property and how much they're charging? Get a copy of the lease, the building insurance policy, outgoing statements and rental ledgers, what developments are happening in the area, because a lot of agents are obviously going to know that area quite well, so they can give you some inside information about what's going on. It will be the positive thing, so try to find the negatives yourself, but it's a nice question to ask. And then the other one is, what's the main source of employment in the area? And then once you've got a few of those questions answered, that's when I'll normally start going into a little bit more detailed due diligence on the area. Yeah, that's a pretty long list, isn't it? You do not want to be asking all those questions to the agent on your first conversation, he's going to run a mile from you. But some very, very good uh, probing questions there. Um, also, one I like to ask is where are they compared to the market for their rate per square meter? And then you can kind of gauge his, because he's, he's not expecting you to ask that. And if he's like, oh, it's really, really high or right. Oh, it's actually pretty low. Like you can kind of get a good idea of where it's at. So you can find some upside there. Yeah, they'll really tell you that the tenant's paying over market rent. If they're paying under market rent, a lot of the times they'll, they'll tell you straight away and they'll say, oh, we can beef up the rent. But then they'll also try to sell you at the fair market rent, not the below yeah. market rent. So, yeah. so, so negotiate it based on the current rent, if you can. Yeah, they're always like, oh, it's so under market rent. Like you're getting a really, really good deal. All you have to do is, um, you know, bring up the rent. Like it's like, yeah, yeah well, if it's so easy, why don't you just do it then? And then I'll pay market, <laughs> market sale price. <laughs> like it's ridiculous. <laughs> All right, mate. So when an investor is doing area research, what should they be looking for and where should they be looking for this? So understanding the region you're buying in is obviously crucial to due diligence because it's going to produce the longevity of the property that you're buying in. So the region's going to affect how the property performs in the short term and the long term. And then in terms of like the tenant success and then like the vacancy rates of the region and the capital growth depending on the demand. So the aim is to always ensure that you have a profitable tenant, even if your tenant leaves in the future. So understanding the actual area buying in is crucial. You need to understand the, like the, the economics, basically. It's so like the macroeconomics of the area. And that's going to tell you like the long-term growth patterns and basically what's coming up. And you, you want the standard things like high population growth and good infrastructure, lack of supply, because that's going to give you the capital growth and ensure you always keep a tenant. So you get this in residential as well as like, it's not unusual for investors to fear buying an area they're not familiar with, but like now with modern technology, like everything can be researched remotely. And so there's no reason not to look in other locations. And one of the things I always say to my clients is the property does not care if you've looked at it 
for some reason, people want to drive past the property and have a look and they feel like it's going to be a safer investment. The property does not care. It has nothing to do with the capital growth or the tenant or how well it's going to perform. So 90% of the work with a commercial due diligence and what we'll talk about on this episode is done remotely. It's done on the phone. It's done by email. It's done by using kind of data websites. So there's no real excuse in today's day and age not to look outside your normal area that you normally would. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's a big wide world, isn't it? There's so many yeah. uh, great properties everywhere in Australia, not just in your local town. Yeah, and if you do shortlist a property and you go under contract subject to due diligence and you want to go look at it, fly up for a week, like flights are reasonably cheap, hire a car, drive around for a few days, get a feeling for the area, talk to property managers, town planners, other sales agents, get a feel and make sure you're comfortable with it. But if you go through the due diligence checklist that I have, you'll cover yourself that way. One handy thing I find to do though, Andrew, is especially if you're buying in a different city, is to find someone in the industry, like other than the selling agent, who you can actually discuss the properties with there. So like local property managers are really useful because they're, they're obviously going to have a lot of information about what the tenants are doing and like if there's a waiting list and vacancy periods and things like that. Now you can also talk to other people like town planners or even other selling agents. So talk to another selling agent, but just be mindful if it is a multi-agent listing because like there's a habit of it getting back to the agent. And if they catch wind of that, they're probably not going to send you properties anymore. So just try to talk to as many people on the ground as you can, and that'll give you a good idea. In terms of the individual's like property's location, if you can visit the property or get some videos of the property and physical inspection, you can find out like what the tenants are like, what the parking arrangements are, like the foot and road traffic at different times of the day, what the competition in the area is like, how are the tenants get on and things like that. So that's one piece of the puzzle that you have to do. You, you must inspect the property. And normally throughout the process, I actually have multiple people inspect the property. Even if I'm not looking at it myself, I get like my building pest inspector. I get my new property manager who's going to be looking at the property and I send a valuer to the property as well. So you've got three people all looking at the property and then you get all the information, you can work it out. And then if you'd like to do a final inspection yourself, you can as well. So depending on the type of commercial property you buy, you're also going to have to check different things about the location. For example, like for retail, the flow of people at different times a day and week is important. Like this is going to help you identify like which businesses are flourish because some of them are based on foot traffic. Other ones, they're going to go specifically for that location. Whereas industrial, for instance, that's not as, that's not important. But you'll probably know that when you're selecting like a residential property, quite often like distance to schools, amenities, services is actually quite critical. That's also critical with commercial, but you're going to be looking at different types of services and amenities as well because the businesses are going to work off each other and fend for each other and also supply the residential area as well. So you need to analyze both with commercial, which is what a slight difference. All right, Steve, one of the other things that you can also do if you can't get to the property, which is really cool, and I'm sure a lot of people already do this, is use Google Maps to actually walk through the whole street. Like I've walked through whole suburbs before just on Google Maps, checking out what's there at a street level. It's a really cool technology now that, you know, basically means that you can inspect a street anywhere in the world almost. Yeah, and, and they're reasonably up to date as well, which is quite nice as well. And then another thing you can do actually is actually go to satellite view because that's going to give you a good like overview of the location and where the arterial roads flow, how much green or brown field there is for land releases as well. So you can get a good helicopter view of it that way. Yeah, I mean, you can see all the main roads and stuff where the traffic flows. One of the things that I also like to do if I'm finding a property in New South Wales is I'll go on to the New South Wales planning portal and I'll look at the zones. So my theory is that the more business, industrial, all those kinds of employment zones, the more diverse that particular location can be. So if you're going into like agriculture kind of town, they're not going to have as many different zones in that location, like your B3, your B1, your B2, uh, industrial one, two, and three. They're probably going to be more of your town where it has RU2, which is farming, or RU1, which is farming zones that are permissible. So it's actually a kind of a quick way to get an idea of how diverse that town or city is just by looking at the zones that are available in that location. Yep, no, that's right. And another tip and trick I do is actually like if I'm looking like a retail or say like a warehouse distribution center is I'll actually use Google Maps and actually do, you know, you can do the, the driving, the GPS of like how long it takes to get places. Yeah. I'll actually do the expected time for, for critical locations. Say I'm buying a distribution warehouse and I need to check how long to get to the airport and things like that. I'll actually check that at multiple times per day. So you're checking like the peak hours. So you check it like the five, six, seven a.m. See what time it is there at 5 p.m. Because that might affect if a tenant buys there. If, if 
if it looks like it's a 15 minute drive on the map, but in peak hour, it's actually an hour, two times, three times a week, probably not the best location. So yeah, hundred percent. All right. Awesome. So just to uh, kind of wrap this part up, what are some of the key points about the region that you can kind of tell us right now, Steve? So when, when you're researching the region, you need to gather the, the following information. So the region's population in terms of like there's density and its growth, what current infrastructure is planned for the future, where the usual amenities are. So like hospitals, schools, and things like that, location of major shopping centers and industrial areas, whether there are areas that can be redeveloped in the future is an important one as well. Whether there's like space available to develop similar buildings because you want to reduce the chance of oversupply in the future. Where the region's at in this property cycle is obviously important as well because you want to try to buy towards the start of a property cycle to get the capital growth. And then another one is like whether the area is seasonal. So like that might be like a holiday destination and how long is that holiday period for? And then what's the quiet period like at some times of the year? So I find a lot of these questions, speaking with the town plan is quite useful. You can also learn a lot from the comparable sales in the area as well. Yeah, some really good tips there. All right, mate. So let's actually talk about comparable sales. What's your favorite way to actually find them? So the first thing I go on is CoreLogic. So it is a paid service, but if you're going to be buying a commercial property, you need to be using websites like this. That's going to give you sold prices and times on the market and things like that. There's also some awesome data websites, Andrew, such as yours, which can give you clarity around like the cap rates and the vacancies as well. And then you can also go on like real commercial and actually just see what currently what other properties are being advertised for as a bit of a quick gauge. Yeah, 100%. I mean, in CP Data, and that's my platform, we actually provide a range of not just only the cap rates broken down sector by sector, but the rate per square meter as well for retail, industrial and office. So you can basically go on there and see like where the property you're looking at is in, in the range of cap rate that's actually being transacted there and also the range of rate per square meter. We we just find that it gives the investor the information to be able to see if something's under-rented compared to the, the market around that property. So it's a really handy little tool. Yeah, no, exactly. Right. And like look, looking at comparable properties, it's, it's not as simple as residential as I keep saying. Like you don't just look up three bedroom houses and you're going to find they're all within kind of 10%. Like it's not just the age and the, the age and the size of the land. Like you've got to look at the cap rate, who the tenant is. And there's variances about like fit out costs and like the property's internals and externals, office and warehouse space, like the, the comparable between like the mezzanine area versus office space versus industrial space versus some have lay down areas outside. Same thing like freestanding versus body corporate properties. And then like for retail, different areas, you can't like like for like, like a retail shop one street back is completely different to one at the end of a retail strip, which is completely different to one near the car park of a retail strip. So that's going to affect kind of the comparable sales as well. One of, one of the things I want to talk about though, you, you need to check that the floors areas match actually what's been advertised from the agent. And like, because a lot of times the, the numbers, they're going to choose a high number but it's not the actual floor space. So well, what I mean by that is like for retail, they may include like the outside footpath area. If that's a cafe, they'll include that in the square meter rates because they can use it, but it's not actually, you don't actually own that. And the, the equivalent would be for industrial, like the mezzanine area, they'll include that. However, that's not the floor area. So just, just be mindful of that and, and cross-check those figures. Like I've had a, here's an example. So like I bought a cafe on the Sunshine Coast for a client. And the footpath, even though we've got exclusive rights to it, you didn't actually own it. So they were advertising it as that's kind of the area that you're buying. So when you're checking your, your square meter rates, we were including that, but then we actually found that we didn't actually own the footpath. We had to take that out. And then we actually found the valuer did the same thing as well. So he actually reduced the rent by the percentage of the footpath rate. So yeah, you need to check things out. Same thing with the mezzanine areas. The another one actually is with comparables with commercial is there's some actually some special properties. So like we all know like when you see like the GP clinic, which is a converted house, that is a lot harder to get a cap rate because you're buying a residential property that's got a commercial tenant with zero comparables in the area. So it, it is a lot harder to get comparable sales, but you need to do your best and try to get as many kind of comparable ones as you can. Yeah, 100%. It is so difficult to be able to come up with a market range of cap rate there's so much work that goes into it, collecting basically every single transaction and trying to get like for like. It's extremely difficult. And I just wanted to explain further with what Steve was talking about 
with the actual net lettable area. So that makes a difference because you're buying commercial property based on the income coming in. So if they're giving you a net lettable area that's larger than as actually listed on the actual title, you could potentially be paying like overpaying for this property. So it's very, very important to know and understand that the net lettable area that has been advertised you is what you're buying. And it's also something as well that if you can do a, a internal survey of the property and you find that you've got more net lettable area than what's advertised, well, that's great. Then the next time the property's up for lease or something like that, you can then negotiate a higher rental for the net lettable area that you found. So it just needs to be on top of that. As Surprisingly, the, Andrew, that happens way more than you think that the area. Oh, it happens all the time. Up. And then, and it's actually quite often lots actually under as well. So you actually, like you said, can bump up the rent. And inversely as well, it's also a value add opportunity. If you're buying a property where you can add some extra floor area, so you can build the mezzanine area or get like extra office space and things like that. That's down the track where you can actually increase the net yield on the property. Yeah. And I mean, just so listeners know, in particularly in the Gold Coast, a lot of the warehouses there have illegal mezzanine installed. It's not actually permitted. It hasn't been gone through council. So legally, they can't actually charge you for that net lettable area. So if they actually are charging you, then that needs to come up in due diligence and you need to reduce the price to actually the area that you're allowed to be charging for. So that's a really good tip. It just it happens all the time. Like it just literally happens all the time. So you really need to be watching out for that. Yeah, I'm finding probably about almost one in three mezzanine areas aren't actually approved. And we'll, we'll yeah. talk about that a little bit later in the episode about kind of what you do in those situations. But this is the thing. It's just like residential, like you might have, a, a I don't know, an extension or something like that. The equivalent is like a mezzanine area, for instance, in a commercial property. So let's move on, Steve. Let's talk about the location next. This is different to the area. Can you explain why the location is different to the area, Steve? All right, so, so with the area, that's like a helicopter view of the region in terms of what's going on in the total region, but the location is a little bit more specific. So there's a, there's a few things you know to analyze for like location. So like that's going to be like how easy it is to access the building, what the street exposure is like, what signage is there and how visible it is. Does the building actually have like natural light? What property storage area do you have for the commercial premise? Is the tenant able to expand their business at the current location? What's the mix and the, like the complementary nature of the neighboring businesses to bring foot traffic? Is the property in a compatible area? So like, does the tenant suit the location? And like, sometimes it's better to be surrounded by businesses with similar uses and other times you want a kind of variety. Like for instance, like an office tenant won't want to lease an office space next to an industrial noisy warehouse. So like they're incompatible businesses. So that might not be the best property to buy. What are the neighbors like is actually on. So the neighboring businesses that, that could put off future tenants or increase crime. Like you might not want to be next to a nightclub, for instance, if you're a health retreat. So you need to look at things like that. Who are the anchor tenants and will that keep demand strong for your type of property? And then just generally like how the nearby business is performing. Oh, another big one, Andrew, is actually parking. That's something that always kind of gets forgotten about, but parking is quite important for obviously the owners of the business and their employees. And then also their customers as well. So you need to look at like, what type of parking is there? Is it secure? Is it free? If if not, how much does it cost? How many exclusive car parks do you actually own for the property? And there's sometimes they'll advertise car parks, but they'll be tandem car parks where you need to park one car behind the other, which isn't as useful, obviously, as free car parks. Look at it if it's underground or above ground. If there's on-street parking as well. So if you don't have car parks, is there plenty of on-street parking? And then is the parking ticketed? And then another one's like um, how, how well lit the car park is. If you're buying a business where people work at nighttime and you're going to leave a night, just from a safety aspect for employees, they'll actually want well lit areas as well. So quite a lot, even just with car parks, Andrew. Oh, 100%. I mean, one of the reasons why they, they don't have these mezzanines um, approved is because when they approve it, they need more parking and they can't get more parking. So it's a very, yes, very <laughs> important piece of the puzzle. So I also wanted to talk about how the different sectors have different location needs. Can you just kind of touch on that for us, Steve? Depending on what you buy, like you might be servicing like the local area. So that's going to be like proximity to the residential properties and things like that. If you're buying something like I say, a distribution center or a manufacturer or something like that, 
that's going to be more of a, like a logistical location. So you're going to want to be like near arterial roads or a certain location that it's servicing or airports or seaports and things like that. Whereas something like retail, it's more to do with like foot traffic and road traffic because that's where you get the kind of people can see the property, they can walk into it. Many businesses are walking like a dentist, for instance, you typically won't walk into that, but like a, a little convenience store, people don't get out of the car and drive specifically for that all that often. Most of the time they're just walking past and they'll duck in. So foot traffic for that is quite important. And then office is actually going to be more about like the talent of the area. So they want to be able to kind of whatever type of employees they need, they need them to be able to come into the office. So ease of location in terms of that is a bit more important. So like you said, depending on what you buy, you need to analyze it in a different way. Yeah. And with office, it's also amenities around that office and how easy it is to get there as well. You know, if there's a local gym, childcare around it, lots of nice shops they can go to for lunch. Like it's a big difference, but with an industrial property, that's probably going to be pretty far out from the main part of the city or main part of the town. But you want that depending on the tenant you have to have good access to motorways and things like that. So it's really specific to the sector that you're looking at. And I just wanted to ask you, Steve, so foot traffic, why is foot traffic important and why can great foot traffic be highly profitable for the investor? So Foot and road traffic, it's really important like for retail properties. Like It's basically how much exposure they're going to get. And that's not just profitable for the investor, Andrew. It's actually profitable for the tenant as well. So if you've got a profitable tenant, they're not going to leave the location, which means you're going to have a lifelong tenant and you'll be able to command a higher rent because obviously the more foot traffic and the more like the well businesses do in the area, that'll actually bump up the net yield because you can increase the rents over time because it is an in-demand area that you'll be able to fill quickly. So you can squeeze a little bit more juice from it. But foot traffic, you need to get a good feel for it. And this is one of the harder ones where you can't just do it by desktop. Like you can't just type in what's the foot traffic of this street. That one, you actually have to go look at the property. So speak with the property managers and then actually go yourself and have a bit of a look of that. Like just have a look at the, like, the property at different times of the day. Like how well patronized it is. Is it heavy foot traffic at certain times of day? Is the building generally attractive? Like does it have curb appeal? Is the property visible from the main street or road? Be mindful though, like a second story one. So, you know, a lot of the times you'll have like a GP clinic or a dentist on the second story of a retail strip. They struggle with more performance than the ground floor because they're not a typical shop front. That has to be a business that people specifically go towards. And then just like general landscaping, how well maintained the areas are. Car traffic is quite a lot. So car exposure can give you 10, 20,000 kind of, it's basically an advertising board for you. So people can drive past going, oh, there's actually a hairdresser there. I might actually go visit the hairdresser next week or make a booking. So road traffic is quite important. Initial impression of the building as well. And then we sort of mentioned this with office space as well. So you mentioned like schools and things like that. Transport links is quite important. So like where the bus stops and train stations are, as it is with office as well. Like office space, I actually say that's even more critical as being the kind of transport. And then another one is obviously little things like, does it have disabled access? That can stop certain tenants moving in as well. So you'd want to try to cast a wide net for future tenancies. So there's quite a lot to go through, Andrew, but having like a good location with lots of foot traffic and road traffic, it's going to ensure like the longevity of your tenant or reduce the vacancy periods if they ever decide to leave. Yeah, I mean, like if you're finding a a retail tenant, particularly for retail for foot traffic, if you're in a main drag and they're getting thousands of thousands of people walking past per day, and then the street back, the retail shop is only getting, say, a couple of hundred, then the disparity in the difference of the rate per square meter that you'll be charging that tenant could be, you know, between 500 to to $1,000 difference. Like, it's wild how much the disparity can be for different rate per square meter you charge for that foot traffic. Yeah, and there's even things like, if you say you're buying a suburban retail strip and the car park is at one end of the strip, you'll actually find you've got a higher vacancy period at the end of the retail strip because people are inherently lazy. They'll walk kind of three quarters of the way down. And if there's a couple shops in a row that aren't that attractive, they'll actually just turn around. So just exactly where it is, like generally the middle two thirds of a retail strip is a really good spot to be in. But like you said, if you're one street back or around the corner, it is actually a completely different property you need to analyze. Yeah, 100%. All right, the next thing we need to talk about is vacancy periods. What's your favorite way to check vacancy? All right, so so firstly, like vacancy is basically just how long the property is going to sit there or remain vacant if the tenant leaves. And that's going to change depending on the type of property that you're looking at. 
the best way I like to check initially is actually just to speak with property managers. Like that is literally their day job. And they'll basically give you like, they'll, they'll tell you what the demand for that style of property is and maybe some comparables of kind of what they've had recently, or if there's a waiting list or how long the vacancy period is going to be. But then I also go back to the things like CoreLogic. So when you check comparable properties on CoreLogic and it's not like re, uh, residential where you just go to a website and type in vacancy rate, three bedroom house. You actually have to click through every single property individually yourself to find the, the, the comparable properties. So I'll go on CoreLogic and I'll actually look at like similar properties and you can actually see how long their leasing campaigns were. So that'll give you a kind of a good indication. Your website as well, things like that, Andrew, your data website, that's a nice way to quick way to check. You'll just find like, if the risk of vacancy outweighs the long-term net return, like don't be tempted just by chasing yields. Like vacant, having really tight vacancy rates is an indicator for demand. So that's, that's going to give you good capital growth, which is going to give you good rental increases, and it's going to minimize your vacancy over the long term. So your net position might actually be higher. Like going out and buying a 5.5% bulletproof net yielding property is actually better than a 6.5% one where the vacancy rates might be two or three years, for instance, because your net result will actually be better. One thing I like to do is I actually like to buy properties where like, say you're buying an industrial property, a lot of the times I like to buy it where it's completely surrounded by residential properties because I can then analyze that residential data and say, okay, if this population is growing in this residential area and there's no future competing industrial properties getting built in the next 10 years on the records, I know I'm going to have more demand for that property in 10 years time than I am now because there's more population and more people to service. So you can mitigate risk that way. Whereas if you're buying out, say, like on the edge of a city and there's lots of green fields where they can build more warehouses and it's not quite kind of gentrified yet, like that, you might have a bad time in terms of vacancy. So choosing where you are and analyzing the vacancy is not just that where it is now, it's where it's going to be in 10 years time. Yeah, well, this particular topic was basically part of the main reason that I took it upon myself to create CP data, where it's just so annoying not being able to just put a, a figure to a sector. And that's why I was able to create a platform that breaks it down sector by sector and gives you a listed vacancy percentage on each sector. And another thing we actually do also is the listed stock on hand as well. So it gives you an idea of the stock on hand compared to the actual market or the other stock on the market. So it's two numbers that you can't base your investment strategy or buying something on just one statistic. You need all of these statistics to make an informed decision. And that was really what bothered me about commercial property is there's nothing available. You might be able to find a great property in a different state than you are anywhere in Australia, but then I'd have to do so much research to identify whether it was actually a good deal in the market or is just a good lease on a bad property. So this is literally why I had to fix this problem and create CP data. So. Yeah, and I know how much work you've had to put into that as well. Like it is a really tough process, but it, it's a lifetime investment. So you need to do the work. So I encourage everyone to go check out Andrew's data website. It's really cool. Yeah, awesome, mate. So what are the other things that we need to analyze when we're actually looking at vacancy? Okay, here's the typical red flags that I find. So like if you're buying in a town that's only got like one or two primary industries supporting it, be mindful if obviously if one of those goes down, vacancies are going to go through the roof. So you need to be my fat. Same things if it's in a small, small town. So if it's got a small population, banks, for instance, actually won't touch most towns that have less than 20,000. So just be mindful of that. Other ones are like, make sure you're not buying like a really low socioeconomic area. However, in some areas, like things like charity shops, fast food restaurants, and things like that can do well in those areas. Check crime rates. As I mentioned before, like if the area is seasonal, so if it's like a, a holiday location, you need to look at the different quiet periods throughout the year, if it's got limited visibility, or if there's like lots of available spaces for its competitors to come in and move in, that, that's going to red flag as well. No parking is a big one. Like that where I find most tenants won't rent a property if there's no parking. As we mentioned before, low foot traffic, road traffic, or overlays are a big one as well. So checking things like flood zones is, is critical. So I guess these are the points that you can look for to predict whether it's going to have a high vacancy period. Exactly right. But then, like I said, you do have to like look at the helicopter view of like the data websites like yours, but then go through individually and find piece by piece comparable properties because you don't actually know until you click on each comparable property, you don't know like what size mezzanine area the other ones had or their fit out 
or what lease terms they're on, what like available parking they've got and things like that. So this is a really grueling part of the process, but it is important to ensure you get longevity of your tenant and low vacancy. Yeah, grueling is actually a very, very good describing word to be like doing due diligence on commercial property. It's a very, very good word to use because it is bloody grueling. It's a really tough process. And if you could pay someone else to do it, I would. It's one of those ones, Andrew, where like, I, I know I'm supposed to love this stuff, but I, I hate doing due diligence in the commercial. I love it when you find a good one though, because it makes like a risk versus reward. You find it and you're like, yep, this is a really good property. I've done the work, but actually doing the work for like, like I said, it can be a week sometimes on a simple property. Yeah, it is tough. hundred percent. So one of the other things that I do like to ask the agents as well, when I'm talking to them on the phone about the property, you just ask kind of like, even when vacant, how long do you think it would take to lease up? And they're always going to give you a shorter period of time than it actually would. But it just gives you a gauge of how hot they think the market is right now. Like a lot of the time with commercial property, a bad commercial property can take 12 you know, to 24 months to lease up, potentially if it's a really bad location in the actual market. But hot properties, particularly if in industrial right now, because Australia-wide in general has a lack of industrial supply and, and also industrial land, these kind of properties have waiting lists sometimes in some markets. And you might literally be able to just turn over a tenant within a couple of weeks if need be. And it's really good to actually think about this in terms of having a buffer as well. So if you're looking at how long the vacancy period potentially could be, then you keep in like two times or three times that buffer for that potential period as well. Yeah, because you don't know how the economy is going to change and circumstances and COVID and wars and things like that. So like I said, you have that buffer. You mentioned asking the agent as well what the typical vacancy is. I find one way to trip them up, Andrew, is actually say once they answer that question, say, oh, cool, can you provide me two or three examples where they got it filled in that time and put them on yeah. the spot? And then then they will have to actually prove, put their money where their mouth is and actually tell you, okay, these properties went vacant. And then, like I said, go speak to a property manager as well. And then they should be able to give you examples. If they can't, they're probably not the property manager you need to use anyway. Yeah, 100%. All right, the next one we're going to talk about is actually a real big deal breaker sometimes, and that's flooding. How do we check flooding, Steve, and how important is it? Everyone aware flooding is very important, and as well as some other overlays as well. So like when I, when I say the word overlays, I'm talking about like planning overlays. So that's like it's for specific pieces of land. So things like flood zones, bushfire risk, noise corridors, heritage listings, transport noise, landslide risk, airport noise, and things like that. You can check all of these things on the local government area websites or LGA, sometimes people call them. And that's going to basically, like you said, it's going to be a deal breaker on all of them. You might find that it's in a flood zone and you need to walk away from the property. Insurance companies as well, obviously hate flood zone properties. So you need to be mindful that you can even get insurance on the property. But if you are going to buy a property with an overlay, make sure you're taking into account that and you're actually getting a higher cap rate because of it. And you're assessing the risk long-term and make sure you're comfortable taking on that risk. Australia has experienced some of the worst flooding, like flood events in the history, you know, just this year. So you really have to be careful now what you're looking at and, and whether or not it's a good deal. Yeah. And a lot of council websites are actually redrawing their flood zones as well because they've actually overflowed from where they were before. So trying to get as far away from a flood zone as you can is obviously a, a nice way to do it, especially if you're inexperienced kind of where it is. But looking at the zoning of the property is also important. Yeah. One of the other things that you need to watch out for, Steve, as well is if your property is in a flood zone now, like say Lismore is a big example where the whole thing flooded like twice this year, those kind of properties, the premium now to insure that property, if the, the actual insurer will even you know, be able to give you a policy, it could totally erode all of your cash flow. So you have to check that you're not buying something and the insurance on it now is underinsured to where it actually needs to be for the updated information they have on that property for the flooding. My partner actually works in reinsurance, which is the, the companies that insure insurance companies. A lot of those companies are actually walking away from property insurance in terms of flooding and bushfires and things like that and the severe weather, just because they know for the next kind of 50, 100 years, it's actually not going to be profitable for them. So you're going to find more and more insurance companies actually just stopping kind of giving you insurance for these types of events. I hope you're enjoying the show. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay up to date with all the hints, tips, and tricks 
in commercial property by following Polisi Property on Facebook. Go to Polisi Property, hit that follow button and never miss a beat with Polisi Property. All right, mate. So we've spoken about a little bit, but we'll talk about it a little bit more. How do we check the zoning on properties? Where do we go? Okay, so so in Australia, all land has a designated zone type that basically permits different types of activity. So generally there's four zones, residential, commercial, industrial, and agricultural. And then like the area can also be kind of classified as mixed use and things like that. So within each zone, there's often different definitions for the types of kind of commercial or industrial business that can be carried out there. And it also gives requirements as to things like building heights. So Zoning can sometimes determine if you're allowed to change the exterior of a shop front or put advertising signs in the building, change its internal fit out or put telecommunication devices or mobile phone towers on top of the building or use like outdoor seating like the example I used before. Even things down to like, can you have heaters on the footpath for your cafe patrons and things like that. So the zoning and planning issues, that's going to dictate basically the use and the development of the areas as well as affect the property's value. So like, not all areas that are designated low density are less likely to have a mass development in the future compared to where like a where like a medium to high rise. So you you typically have like obviously like you can have high density or low density zoning, and like this can have two sides. Like oversupply is less likely to occur in like a low density kind of zoning, as like the developers are they're not going to come in and kind of buy out because it's too expensive to try to not get the sort of the high density kind of nature of it. However. If you're the investor, you're not going to be able to develop the property for profit then because like it is low density. Yeah. So with the zone, just so everyone knows, zoning in Australia is specific to the state you're in. So in terms of the actual state government, the zoning is different and easier and and a lot harder in, in different states. So New South Wales typically has a very, very good planning portal. It's actually a lot easier to understand zoning in New South Wales. Whereas Queensland is actually quite difficult to understand zoning. If you don't know where to go, you don't know what the zones actually mean. It doesn't give you a list of potential uses all the time, which is a little bit harder. And there are nuances to each different state with their zoning. But one of the actual awesome things about being able to go on and find your zone that you're actually buying into is what the potential uses are in that zone. And we'll talk about this in another podcast where we can add value, because if you can identify the zones or the uses in that zone, then you could potentially identify a use that you can get a higher rate per square meter with. So that means you can add value by changing the use of the property to a higher rate per square meter, which will result in a higher valuation to the property. We'll talk about that later in another podcast, Steve. Yeah, exactly. And then the, some of the local government websites as well, you can actually get like an interactive mapping tool where you can check the zones of different areas. The other thing I like to do is actually talk to a local council town planner because they're always an excellent source of information. Like that's their day job. And they'll be able to tell you generally like what you're most likely going to be able to do with that property or what's going on in the area as well and give you kind of a nice overview of it. Yeah, and they're free as well. So you can call them anytime just to get a bit of information before you engage a town planner to do any kind of paid work for their business. Yep, no, exactly right. All right, mate. So what are some specific things, some bullet points that we can share to check on zoning? All right, so as we mentioned before, the type of zoning is obviously critical. And then whether that property is zoned for like the current and future tenants use that you're going to be having in it. Heritage listing is obviously a big one if you're buying something like a retail or like an old school industrial complex, for instance. Uh, future zoning potential. So you can obviously don't buy based on that. But if you think the zoning is going to change in the future, that might be a nice little value add down the track. Easements is a big one. So basically easements are a, a section of the land registered for your property's title. And it normally gives like someone else like the right to use your land. So that can be things like shared driveways or right of access, right to light and air, and then services such as like gas draining the sewage and things like that. And then the density of the zoning as well, you can check that as well. So quite a lot to go through, but um, have a bit of a Google and go on the council websites, speak with some town planners and get your head around zoning because it is a quite important piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So mate, I just wanted to touch on the due diligence checklist that you have again. Can you just share where we can actually download that, mate? 
Yep. So just go to my website, www.policyproperty.com. And it's in the resource section with a lot of other resources like we have on, on this on podcast as well in terms of cash flow spreadsheets, or you can get a free copy of my book as well. So just use the code word podcast at checkout. And yeah, you can follow along and listen to these podcast episodes with the documents as well. So on that checklist, Steve, there's over 50 documents that we're going to need to request. Can you share what they are? Maybe not all 50, but the real main ones. Yeah. Okay. So, so the ones for like, in terms of the area location, like there's quite a few. So like, you're going to have the council and town planning documents. So that's going to be like consents and conditions, construction certificates, occupation certificates, building certificates, fire and safety certificates, heritage listings, conservation documents. And then with the zoning, you're going to have things like the types of zoning, zoning potential, the information from the town planner and things like that. But you'll get all these documents and you need to analyze all of them as well. And that's, again, one of the differences with residential. Residential property, you get two or three documents. This, like my due diligence folder is like literally a folder with 10 different kind of subfolders and then like sometimes hundreds of documents. So, but you do need to go and see how these are going to impact the property that you're buying. All right. Well, I think that wraps up episode seven. Steve, where can listeners go to find out about you and your services? Yep. So, so feel free to stalk me online. Just type, type in my name on any of the social media platforms or go to my website, www.policyproperty.com and have a bit of a look. And there's plenty of free resources on there that you can download. Awesome, mate. Well, stay tuned for episode eight, part two of the DD, where we explain how to assess the tenant and the business and also the building and pest process. This has been author Steve Polisi and Andrew Bean on the Commercial Property Investing Explained series. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Commercial Property Investing Explained series. This show has been produced by the Commercial Property Show Network. (laughs) 